Our scripture text this week comes from James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Uh, Listen now for the word of the Lord. Not many of you should become teachers, my sisters and brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he or she says, then they are a perfect person able also to bridle their whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. And look at the ships. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, and yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. And it is also set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed with humankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord, the God, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my sisters and brothers. These things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my sisters and brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is a sort of counterintuitive or potentially unwise thing, I think, for James to say, especially during a time in the church's life when teachers of this new religion or this new Jesus way are likely in short supply. But James isn't being negative or unwise or even original or radical with his declaration in these first two verses. Luke Timothy Johnson, a scholar of this short letter, tells us that from the sages of ancient Egypt, through the biblical books of Proverbs and Sirach, to the essays of Plutarch and Seneca, there's a consensus that silence is better than speech. That hearing, not speaking, is the pathway to wisdom. That speech, when necessary, should be brief. And that, above all, speech should be under control and never the expression of rage or envy. This is a pretty difficult thing for anyone to hear, but if you can put yourself into my shoes for one minute, you know, I'm a preacher preparing a sermon, uh, which is why I think we should just say, Amen and uh, continue on with whatever we were doing before this. I'm kidding. But Luke Timothy Johnson's right, isn't he? I mean, humankind has been saying this for thousands of years. In fact, Epictetus, the Stoic philosopher who was writing around the same time as James, says almost exactly what James has said. He says, Be for the most part silent. Or speak merely what is necessary and in few words, and then we may, however, enter, though sparingly, into discourse sometimes when occasion calls for it, but not on any of the common subjects, 
of gladiators or horse races or athletic champions or feasts or the vulgar topics of conversation, but principally not of humans, so as neither to blame or praise or to make comparisons. And so if you're able then, by your own conversation, bring over that of your company to proper subjects. But if you happen to be taken among strangers, be silent. Even though James is in good company in his thoughts that silence really is better than speech, he also adds something to the argument that the others haven't to this point. He says that the tongue is a fire in verse 6. It's a world of unrighteousness. And that's to say that the tongue is still somehow ruled by a chaos that hasn't been present since the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep in the beginning before there was light or anything else at all. Because as James says, every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. In this way, it represents for James a part of the body with a unique ability to impose its will onto the world. The tongue, James thinks, has a mind of its own and the ability to create worlds in certain courses for humans to travel during their lifetimes. Luke Timothy Johnson puts it best saying that the power of the tongue is language and he says, language is a world-creating capacity, and the real peril of the tongue is not found in the passing angry word or the incidental oath or the petty bit of slander. It's found in the creation of distorted worlds of meaning within which the word of truth is suppressed. Now, we don't need to spend any time highlighting anything on the power of speech and its evil potential or even its potential for good. I think that most of us have had harsh and angry words spoken to us or we've spoken them to those that we love. And most of us have had a loving word spoken to us or we've spoken a loving word to those that we know. And most of us have heard of Martin Luther King Jr. and his messages of hope and the movements he inspired in the 60s. And most of us have heard of Adolf Hitler and the evils he brought into this world as well. However, I'd like to add to James's argument here when he says that the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, James says. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, James says. Indeed, it is staining the whole body. And I would add to that that it has made its way to our fingers and thumbs. There's a crisis in the world today stemming from the overuse and abuse of social media. Recently, Dr. Emma Sapala published an article in Psychology Today called Three Ways Social Media Ruins Everything, which is kind of a silly title for an article, but I was really struck by the article, and in it she says that you lose the experience of happiness in the process of trying to refine your smile for public consumption. Your attachment to positive reinforcement through likes and comments will keep you detached. Instead of deriving pleasure from your experiences and the people around you, you will begin to seek it, along with validation, from your phone. 
or whatever device you have in front of you. She says that one study found that the mere presence of a cell phone while two people are talking interferes with their feelings of closeness, connection, and communication. Dr. Sapala isn't the only one who's mentioned this. Chamath Palihaptia, a former Facebook executive, told students at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, it literally is a point now where I think we've created tools that are ripping apart the social fabric of how society works. That's truly where we are, he says. The short term, he goes on, dopamine-driven feedback loops that we have created are destroying how society works. No civil discourse, no cooperation, misinformation, mistruth. And it's not an American problem, Polyhoptia says. This is not about Russian ads. This is a global problem. Polyhoptia continued saying that bad actors can now manipulate large swaths of people to do anything that they want. And we compound the problem. We curate our lives around this perceived sense of perfection because we get rewarded in these short-term signals, hearts, likes, thumbs up, and we conflate that with value, and we conflate it with truth. Instead, what it is is fake, brittle popularity that's short-term and leaves you even more, admit it, vacant and empty before you did it. Think about that. Compounded by two billion people. And we should think about that. That's a huge, huge problem. When Pali Hapatia says that we've curated our digital lives around a perceived sense of perfection, he means, I think, that whenever we share something, say a picture or a quote or a picture quote or a memory, and all of our digital friends agree with it, uh, and, and they like it, or they love it, or they give it a thumbs up, or they share it, we take that to be valuable. And we may even take it to be some kind of expression of love. And in some cases, you know, it really is. But in some cases, even if it's a, a picture making fun of someone, or even if it's a quote that's entirely untrue and false and fake and something that's spreading misinformation, even if it's a lie, or something manufactured and used by political parties, no matter which side you're on, something used by political parties to manipulate voters or ads manipulated by huge corporations to get you to buy something that they're selling, or something to put down their competitor, even when those things are shared that are terrible and sinful. We don't really care. If our digital friends like it, and they click their like, and they click their hearts, and they click their thumbs up, then we think, you know, it must be valuable. It must be true in some sense. And so, we promote it. Or at least, we aren't very vocal about what we don't like about it. This is a global problem. It's not just an American one. And it's not just a problem among young people either. In fact, studies show that baby boomers and the older generations in particular have a much more difficult time discerning honesty on the internet. And, and please, please hear me when I say that, you know, I'm not blaming or making fun of these groups. I say all of this to say that James could not have anticipated any of this. Or maybe he did. 
Maybe that's what he meant when he said that the tongue has a mind of its own. In any case, this really is the tongue run amok in the world. And we've obviously not heeded the Stoics, the Hellenists, the Egyptians, or any of the ancient wisdoms, including the letter of James, when they warned us and tried to teach us that silence is better than speech. Perhaps it's because they couldn't have anticipated that our speech and our talk would move into the virtual realm as well, or onto Facebook and into these other places. And so, yes, there would be more silence in the world now than maybe James would have anticipated, but the tongue is still talking, isn't it? The tongue is still communicating whether the words are spoken out loud with the voice or whether the words come out of our hands and our fingers and are projected onto screens. The tongue is still wild and free, and as Christians, we have to work to tame it in every single form that it takes. We have to set the example for the world. Now, we've been talking about the spiritual gifts that God gives us from his grace and his love, and we've been talking about the prophets among us and the servants among us, and now I want to say a word about teachers. The very best teachers in the world, I believe, are also the best listeners. They're those people who are silent and still and always seem to be thinking, and when they speak, a certain authority and power comes from their lips. Those who have the gift of teaching, and by this, please hear me, I don't mean not just those who are given a paycheck and the title of teacher. I think those with the gift of teaching, they're the ones who understand James when he says that not many of you should become teachers, my sisters and brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. They're the ones that fear that judgment that comes from being considered a teacher, and they're the ones who revere the position and so take their job very, very seriously. They understand James, too, when he says, we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone doesn't stumble in what they say, they are a perfect person, able also to bridle the whole body. And so they've figured out a way to care for their words and their actions, and they've these, these teachers among us, they've figured out a way to use the gift that God has given them. They're the ones who can show us, as James does, that if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, then we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. They're so large and are driven by strong winds, and they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Those with the gift of teaching, they're the ones who understand that we all need a discipline. We all need something to guide us. We all need something that helps us to control our path in life so that the tongue doesn't take us wherever it wants us to go. We need to be grounded and rooted in wisdom. That's what the teachers tell us. Only wisdom, which comes from God, they say, can save us in the end. Those with the gift of teaching know this. Those with the gift of teaching don't complain unendingly about their life and their problems. and They don't go on and on and on incessantly about the unfairness of their existence because they know that the world is changed by their example and not by their opinions. 
Those with the gift of teaching stoop down to the level of children and they look into the eyes of the elderly and their peers and they listen to them. They listen intently to everybody and they try to take everything into their thrumming minds and they try to process all they've seen and heard and they think about it. They think about it deeply and they try to find ways to serve and love those around them, especially those they've been entrusted to teaching. Those with the gift of teaching don't share harsh pictures on the internet filled with hatred and untruth. They don't spread false quotes to everyone in the world or any other meaningless things across the internet. They're the ones who teach us to read. They're the ones who teach us to investigate. They're the ones who say to us that we have to ask the hard questions of every circumstance that we come across. They have to teach us what we learn and what we believe. And they're ruthless and tireless in their own search for truth. And they challenge us all by saying that really there's always more to any issue than meets the eye. Those who have the gift of teaching know too that no human being can tame the tongue. They know that it's a restless evil full of deadly poison. And so they're careful when they do share their opinions and speak. They're careful with what they put back out into the world because they know that whether they're speaking words or typing them or sharing them or forwarding them or liking them, those with the gift of teaching know and they teach us that with every single word that falls from our lips, we bless our Lord and God, and with every single word, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. That's it. That's what they teach us. They say that our words, whether spoken or digital, have power, an awful power, that is not to be reckoned with. I want to say one final thing about those with the gift of teaching. and The thing that they always teach us before anything else that they say is that they love us. Teachers, and I mean the very best teachers, the one that are really carrying this gift from God, they are always speaking how much they love those around them because they know that we can't learn anything and we can't hear anything if we don't know first that we're loved. You know, I've talked a lot about my dog, Ron, um, whether personally or from the pulpit here. And, and Ron, as you know, well, he's exactly what you might expect a dog named Ron to be. He's ornery. He's always up to something. Uh, he's restless and he's vocal. Well, there was one day in January when I left Ron out of his kennel and I went grocery shopping. And I had read somewhere on the Internet uh, that with puppies, you need to gradually expose them to more and more time alone in the house. You don't want to give them too much time to get in trouble with, you know, but you need to trust them with something, some small amount of time, however trivial it is. And well, I gave little Ron about 40 minutes alone in the house, and when I returned from the grocery store, he had completely uprooted a large potted plant in our living room. And I promise you this, the plant he dug up weighed about twice as much as he did, and it appeared, based on the evidence from the crime scene, that Ron had jumped up into the potted plant, and he began digging ferociously toward the roots of the plant. 
and he was flinging all that dark soil over our new rugs and living room. And then, once he had removed enough of the soil, he tugged and tugged until the plant fell out of the pot and onto the rug. And then Ron found a comfortable place to lay down and chew on it. Now don't worry, the plant does live at the end of this story. Ron, on the other hand, well, let's just say he's lucky. I should admit that I hadn't taught the dog that he shouldn't touch the plant. You know, I didn't know I had to. I thought that with all of the beings existing in the Logaman-Mastowski household, that there was sort of a general understanding that we don't try to kill the potted plants. You know, Sarah led by example, and she didn't dig up the plant, and I led by example and didn't dig up the plant, and so I guess I just assumed that the dog would know to do the same too, but I was wrong, obviously. I grabbed Ron by the nape, and I carried him to the mess, and I rubbed his nose in it, and I told him, no, no, and then I rolled him on his back, and I made him submit, and I told him he was a bad dog, along with several other things that I won't dare repeat from this pulpit. But let's just say that, you know, by the end of his experience, Ron had developed a very good understanding of doggy heaven and doggy hell. Now, I'm asking you, if you're listening to this, to not report me to the ASPCA or whatever animal rights group handles these sorts of things, okay? Like, that dog is spoiled, all right? And, and some of you may agree or disagree with my doggy parenting uh, practices, but the dog really is like spoiled rotten and he's treated more like a human than he is with a dog. So if my parenting tactics, tactics on the puppy uh, offend you, just stay with me here. Anyway, I, I gave Ron the cold shoulder for a long time that evening and near the end of the night I decided that it was time that we should work on some tricks and when I told him to come to me, he wouldn't come. When I told him to sit, he looked around like he had done something wrong again. and He cowered. We couldn't practice any tricks, let alone learn anything new, because Ron, I think, was afraid that I, I didn't love him or that he had done something worthy enough of casting me out of the group. And, you know, like in the moment, he really wasn't wrong. I was so upset with that dog, and there's still a dark stain in my rug from all of the soil that he had dug up. But eventually I had to get on the floor with Ron and I had to pet Ron and I had to sort of make up and I really think that he needed to know that I loved him still. That even after he had uprooted the, the, the potted plant and made a mess in the living room, it, it didn't matter. I still loved him. Whether we're good teachers or bad dog parents, we're always speaking how much we love those around us because we know that we can't learn anything and we can't hear anything if we don't first know that we're loved. I remember my childhood baseball coach, Demi Witten. Demi was one of the cool dads uh, of one of my friends, and he sort of coached everything, all the sports. But I remember him primarily as my baseball coach. And what you need to know about me and baseball is that I love the sport. It's a beautiful sport. It's graceful. It's intelligent. It's strategic and it's subtle. And there's really no element of time involved in it, which is unique to it as a sport. Um, but uh, gosh, I despised playing baseball when I wasn't on the mound pitching. 
And this is undoubtedly because of some deep childhood need that I had to be the center of attention or something. But the, the problem with me pitching was that I, I would get really nervous and sometimes forget the count or forget where the runners were. I would forget how many outs we had, you know, or I would, I would just get frazzled and, and rush uh, my, my throw. And Demi would always try to teach me to take a deep breath to calm down, to look around and just enjoy the game. You know, he would say, it's, it's just a game, Garrett. It's just a game. Have fun. And I remember one particularly embarrassing game when a kid who had broken his arm came up to bat. And in my arrogance, I thought he would be an easy out. And then, dink, on the first pitch, he hit a line drive to center and turned it into a double. The parents went wild, and they should have, you know, but I was embarrassed beyond belief, and a kid with one arm had just hit my pitch. After the game, I remember Demi stooping down and looking up at me because I was hanging my head, and he said, Garrett, you're still our pitcher. Everyone has a bad game, and I'm so glad you're on our team. I love having you around. And then he asked me if I would follow him to the mound because he wanted to teach me a little more about my throwing motion. And he said he wanted to teach me some ways to get more speed and consistency. I followed him to the mound, and he taught me whatever he taught me. I don't remember, and I don't really care. But I think of Demi as a person with the gift of teaching, because no matter what he said, he always listened first. And no matter what sport he coached, and no matter what skill we worked on, I always knew that Demi loved me, that he loved having me on his team, and that he was always there to listen to me. Demi wouldn't complain unendingly about his life and his problems. He wouldn't go on and on incessantly about the unfairness of his existence and how God had sent him a terrible red-headed pitcher for his little league baseball team. And Demi did something the other day that inspired me. He shared this quote on his Facebook page. The world is changed by our example and not by our opinions. And that, I think, sums up the mindset of those who have been given the gift of teaching.